Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today, it's a break from Brexit, not for long, there'll be more soon, but we're going to be talking about political novels, political fictions, and what makes a good one with someone who's written a couple of the best. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. This is a conversation that we recorded a couple of weeks ago with Richard T. Kelly, who is a novelist and the author of two of the best political novels of the last few decades, The Knives and Crusaders, and we'll be talking about both of them. And we were joined by Kasia Boddy, who is a literary critic and an expert on contemporary fiction. And we're here not just to talk about Richard's novels, but about political fiction in general, what we like, what we don't like, and by the end, what our favourite books are. So Richard, The Knives, which is about a Conservative Home Secretary. And when I read it, it did that thing, which is obviously the trick of fiction, that I thought this is exactly what it must be like to be a Conservative Home Secretary. But I have no idea what it's like to be a Conservative Home Secretary. So how do you know what it's like? Because you've also not been a Conservative well, Home I'm, Secretary or any Home Secretary. I'm glad you thought that. I and mean, that was sort of the idea of it. I mean, I was glad that uh, Alan Johnson, who had been a Labour Home Secretary, said he liked it and thought it was authentic. And then sort of Amber Rudd, who was the, the occupant of the office at the time. Uh, how I got there, if it works, it's because of research, a lot of research, and then that strange thing called empathy, I suppose. You know, I'm interested in moral dilemmas as a, a fiction writer, as a dramatist, and you want to put yourself in certain shoes if you want to explore that. My moral dilemmas in life are quite meagre. If you're the Home Secretary, those dilemmas are every day, you know, crushing. A few people commented at the time, and I think it says something about people's expectations of political fiction, that it was so striking that it was an empathetic account of a Conservative Home Secretary. There's that whole riff in Charles Moore's biography of Margaret Thatcher, where he kind of complains about her representation in fiction, because he kind of says no one gets her, apart maybe from Alan Hollinghurst, uh, no one gets her, because they're all coming at it from this kind of assumption that you can't empathise with someone like that, and your book is deeply empathetic. Yeah, I mean, it depends how tribal you are. On this issue, I'm always reminded of a remark made by a character in Martin Amos's novel, The Information, where the guy says, you know, the world around him just seems to be all Labour, and sometimes it feels like everyone in the country is Labour except for the government. I think that says a little something about certain cultural declensions we have. But as a, as a novelist, you want to get on both sides of the fence, you want to find both sides of, a, of an argument in yourself, otherwise you're not really doing your job. And also, traditionally, I don't know your own politics, but the the politics that you're not identifying with can be more stimulating in some ways. You know, Balzac is famously the conservative person who wrote really about modernity in France, and it was everything he hated that stimulated him. Absolutely. I'm a big admirer of Norman Mailer uh, as a writer on, on politics, and, and Mailer... Uh, he described himself as a left conservative. He was making it as a, almost as a mischievous challenge. But I also think of Conor Cruz O'Brien, great a political writer, um, said of Edmund Burke, his hero, that he, he understood the forces of revolution and counter-revolution because he contained them both within himself. And I think that's where a, a novelist wants to be 
as well, writing about politics. The other thing that really stands out in The Knives is, so it captures the relentless day-to-day pressure. And again, it does that thing which makes being Home Secretary seem bafflingly unique, the challenge of dealing with terrorism and prisons and the police and everything else. And it also feels like a completely recognisable workplace. You know, it's like that thing that sometimes the great political novels are novels about work, actually. Yeah. They, and this, to me, you know, I think a lot of people who read it, there's a scene in it where he has a kind of showdown with his permanent secretary, the Home Secretary and the permanent secretary. He's a man, she's a woman. And it's a sort of argument about bullying and people losing their temper and so on. And it is completely no one who's worked in a university, for instance. <laughs> So there's that double thing going on. Is there a sense in which political novels are partly novels about work, actually, workplaces? The good ones, they capture that. Well, they sort of have to be. If it's a novel about government, then your conscious eyes certainly was that you have to get out of the office too because you know that the reader will have a certain resistance to being in Whitehall for too long. But you're looking for things that are relatable. And I I honestly think the writers should have a a friend in every profession. And I often think people, if they use their imagination, should realise that their workplace... They can transport their own dilemmas or project them very easily onto ones that seem outsized. We all put our trousers on the same way, one leg at a time. But I also think that the the way that you focus, you know, almost in this kind of relentless meeting to meeting and getting in the car and then another meeting and every chapter I end up exhausted, even as he's not. But it is something about then there's no space to think for him. And I think that's what's quite revealing about is where are the big ideas coming from it's you know they're thought in 10 minute gaps between yeah, other meetings <laughs> that was definitely a, yeah. a debt to, to fidelity I had to show that the, the dilemmas come in like gangbusters I mean I think the first 70 pages of the novel are all set in one day yeah. and it's a purposeful kind of stage management but I don't think it's inaccurate in terms of how the things stack up but again of course yes for dramatic purposes eventually you have to send the character in, into the lion's den a bit more than just him um, bashing heads with civil servants which is of course the job yeah. and the home office it's also notoriously the kind of graveyard of politicians we'll come on to one politician who made it out of the home office and into a higher office in a minute but another thing that's really striking about the knives is that you've got a kind of idealist in that role i mean he's in this relentless pressure of events he's looking for meaning I've tended to associate the Home Office and its occupants with kind of ruthless operators. There have been quite a few of them, particularly actually on the Labour side. Some of the Labour Home Secretaries have been... Can you name them? I mean, who do you have in mind? John Reid, okay. Charles Clark. No doubt idealists too in their way, but there's a... Whereas there are moments in this where he, he, I think there's a line early on where he is reflecting and he says that he's never had more sort of really important decisions to make in any day and yet he's never found anything more futile than this and he's looking for the thing beyond the futility even as you know and it, it is a job where given the range of responsibilities you never safe for a moment to think for yourself because the next thing is coming yeah. you know, there's something it's not just a political novel it's a home office novel that's part of what makes it so interesting fidelity wise i think prime ministers send tough and durable characters there they send people with a can-do attitude story. So it's not just about political ambition. In the case of my fictional guy, Blaylock, he's, I mean, he's purposely a little bit different. It's almost like the, the faulty towers principle of drama, you know, put someone in, in a job who's actually not at all suited to it. If you're an ex-soldier with anger management issues, you know... Wanting <laughs> to do good in the world. <laughs> yeah, it's like light the blue touch paper. Um, but 
That conflict in him is, is a lot to do with the, the ex-soldiering part of him, the idea that in the army you're taught to make decisions with moral courage and you, you stand or fall by them. And that particular frustration he feels, as I'm, I'm not doing anything, no one's doing what I say, there's no chain of command. That drama arises from putting that man in that job. You can see how he might be a candidate if you took it as a real scenario, but there'd be serious question marks too. So Theresa May, the politician I mentioned <laughs> just now, so it is quite rare for Home Secretaries to become Prime Minister, partly because notoriously you are damaged politically by that experience. She was, the, I think, the longest serving Home Secretary of modern times. And clearly, it was her political formation in a way, that office. So you said Amber Rudd liked the book. And Amber Rudd, in a way, seems more of a classic Home Secretary, not least because she didn't survive the experience. experience. I mean, she may yet rise to greater things. But um, Mm. So when you look at Theresa May, as someone who's kind of fictionalised this role, but also tried to ground it in the real experience, do you see, quote unquote, a Home Secretary Prime Minister? Do you see someone who seems to have been shaped by this particular office? Interesting. Because some people do, it has to be said, there is that view of her. It probably brought out in her what was there already, the the, the quality of durability. I mean, you look at her now and think about what's the worst day you've had at work, and imagine if you're her, you have it every day, you know. Philip Collins said, interestingly, in the Times a few weeks ago, that Theresa May has a novel way of dealing with humiliation. She she chooses not to feel it. And I wish I had that uh, gift. Um, But she she was durable. Um, At the Home Office, she sometimes got to the end of a problem by doggedness and wore down the opposition, thinking, for example, the Abu Qatada case, for example. In other cases, she was with, say, the, the famous net migration target of 100,000, which is undoable. Everybody knew that was undoable. But she stuck to it out of some peculiar sense of duty. It was like a rule taker that way. I think and, it was also that feeling that the posh boys who'd given her that task hadn't taken it seriously and it was one way to sort of show them what she thought of them that she would yeah in terms of the personal wounds of the individual and you think about her if it's correct telling Osborne that he needed to understand the Tory party better I'm sure she was delighted to get that job and I'm sure that Cameron and Osborne offered it to her with a certain sense of condescension I think yeah well, she's not a challenger to us, and she can, she'll be durable. Yeah. Durable, she'll, but expendable. She'll, she'll lose, the, a, lose a job at the end like they all do, and then that'll be that. Which, and I don't think she'll make a tragic heroine. I mean, there, there isn't enough to her, really, is there? I mean, that what's the backstory? Could you imagine a novel about Theresa May? No, um, <laughs> no. But, but there, are, there are elements about her that the public if they're not being entirely tribal about it, find sympathetic and and sometimes melancholic. Um, I was going to say, in a way, there's this odd thing that people seem to both find her completely unknowable and to relate to her in this odd way at this current moment. And And it's also striking how she dominates the political space today for a leader who's in so many ways so weak. It is increasingly all about her. Well, it's a kind of underdog story that she's being bullied and so we must sort of support her because there are these even more horrible people around her. But on the other hand, she invited them all to sit next to her. So how can we feel sorry for her? She, and she's created her own problems, but not in a tragic hero kind of way, but just in a blundering way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're hated on all sides, uh, then people, the, the, the human spirit extends and cries out a little bit. So I think that there's a little bit of that pity for her, even though it might just be short-lived. Elements of 
her struggle, her diabetes, the quality of her marriage, which everyone seems to notice. Uh, those things, on a, on a human level, people look at that and go, well, that person has some caliber to them, despite the hole that she is in with the rest of us. Yeah, and there is a, a gender aspect to this there as is. well, which is... Kind of slightly patronizing. Yeah, a woman sort of beset by men. Yes. But also that feeling of, again, to go back to the workplace story, that yeah. we can all relate to what it must be like at the end of a day, like the days that she's had, kind of going home and thinking, oh my God, and then having to do it again. Yes. And but then making it worse the next day. <laughs> and then you think, <laughs> why should I feel sorry for this person? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, well, the problem about dilemmas is there's no solution to them. It's just, it's just another dilemma. I mentioned Charles Moore criticising Margaret Thatcher's novelizers, apart from Alan Hollinghurst in The Line of Beauty, who has this famous scene where there's a party in, I think, about 1985 in Notting Hill and, and Thatcher arrives. And it's kind of, it's not particularly sympathetic, but it kind of treats her with a certain kind of respect. In Crusaders, your, if I can call it, your new labour novel uh, or it's sort of anyway that's new labor in it let's say yeah no no reason the young younger tony blair has a famous kind of walk on part so that's there is that other way of which is not true of the knives another way of doing political fiction which is the fictitious characters are there but the real people appear between the two is it a very different kind of approach so with the knives there's no one real right in that one no there's not it's it's, it's definitely a parallel universe what might have been after 2010 but definitely before june 2016 i wanted that much freedom whereas crusades is definitely set in a definable past it's very much about the northeast and, and new labor has a big has roots in the northeast in blair and other individuals and that, that was part of the politics i wanted to dramatize in the background to the main story, which is, of course, about a, a priest and a gangster. Yeah. It's sort of an odd kind of roots because it's the kind of the roots of the carpetbaggers for some of them. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, your, your Blair is kind of there trying to lay down these slightly fake political roots. Blair becomes a, a changing figure in the life of a character who's on a journey from being a, a Trotskyist to a, a New Labour MP. But, I mean, I had a bunch of things I wanted to explore about the Northeast and that, but, but part of it was definitely stirred by how much Blair is of the Northeast, and people don't understand that. That's why the stupid joke about Jackie Milburn got passed around by people who wanted to believe it, the idea that Blair was a, a kind of phony Newcastle United supporter. James Fenton, who was briefly at school with Blair, wrote very perceptively early on about how Blair represents something a declension in Durham between the city and the county, between the, the, the colliery villages and the city with its castle and cathedral and, and university. Blair comes from a very unglamorous place called High Shincliffe. Um, so the idea that Blair didn't understand Labour, didn't understand, if you like, the two sides of the, of the Labour Party equally well, the old ILP and the Fabian. So that was a misconception that the book's not to correct that, but I wanted to remind uh, people that he wasn't, Blair was no carpetbagger. He would not have become the MP for Sedgefield if he had been. Because some of the others were, right? There was that kind of, you then got a whole set of constituencies, new Labour constituencies in the North East. Yeah, it's no, it's no accident that you have Peter Mandelson in Hartlepool and you have Milburn in Darlington, Myers, Myers in Newcastle, um, Mo Molam in Redcar. Um, these individuals had been doing a lot of thinking about the post-industrial North and what Labour had been and what it would have to be to win power and, and the new economy, etc. So no accident you get a coalescing of ideas there. Because he's also the Islington Blair, I mean, at the same time, right? That's I guess I hadn't quite appreciated the... Because I'm almost reading it too much as that 
he, at this point he's on the road to looking for a seat mm. from having been the kind of North London lawyer. Yes. So there's a back and forth as well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, his cameo in, in the novel comes at a point when in real life Blair was being very useful to Michael Foote at finding a legal means to, to get militants out of the party. And that was how he impressed Foote with his acumen then. And the Islington Blair, of course, is what after 1995, 96, that's, that's all that we, that most people saw. But there was there was a journey as as, as, as he as he once himself. Yeah. But it's also, I think, an example of how, in some ways, the best political novels extend from the political moment forward into dystopia, often, but also back into history, and kind of think about how you get to the present moment. Yeah. I mean, writing the present is very, very hard. Robert Harris, who's a very, very skillful, popular novelist, always says, if you want to write about politics now, go about 20 years back. You can't go wrong, but you can intelligently you know, show how we, how we got here. Isn't there that kind of rule that 40 years of the war and peace... It was like, Walter Scott was 60 years hence, okay, yeah. And, and middle Waverley, March yeah. is Middle March Middle the March same. is... That sort of generational thing. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But the, the challenge is to get from one generation to the next, as well as to try Yeah, and so it's 1870, so it's just after the Second Reform Act, but looking back to the lead-in to the First Reform Act, starts in 1829. So the novels now should be about the well, late but it's 70s. Hard. Yeah, and that's hard. How can we... I think it's actually easier to write dystopias because partly imagining a future, they not they all tend to be the same, but they, there is a kind of same equality to dystopia. You exaggerate things about now, whereas a historical political novel, which is trying to do the work of working out how you got there, I think is harder mm. uh, and perhaps more necessary. Um, you have to make it all appropriately strange, as, as it was back then. Dystopia, you can get away with a certain amount of, of the image repertoire that we all carry now about what the future will be. And, and, and of course, the reader of dystopia is always looking to see, ah, where's the hook, where's the catch? What are you trying to say about right now? A phrase that was used of Crusaders, and I don't know if you like or hate this phrase, is that it was a state of the nation novel, which is another kind of genre of political fiction, but it clearly goes beyond political fiction. As you say, it was a, it was a novel about the church. It was a novel about gangsters. It was, it was about the Northeast. How do you feel about being well, uh, called a state of the nation novelist? Well, as a phrase, it's a bit of a big clunking fist, isn't it? I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily do you any favours with the casual browsing reader. But I don't mind it. I mean, it describes the novels that I love, you know, which are mainly 19th century uh, novels. The idea of wanting to write on national themes is, to me, an, an honourable one as long as you're dramatising them, and that's, that's, that's the point of it. You can't just pontificate. You have to find human dramas and conflicts that, uh, that are expressive to the reader rather than imagining you, you, you've got a sack of coal and you're filling it with messages uh, and, and historical detail. It's, again, another way of extending the politics of the novel beyond Westminster or Washington or to think about where does it come from in the country? You know, yeah. What is it trying to represent or what is it? Yeah, I, from. I, I was interviewed, this came out for a piece in The Observer about State of the Nation. And when I read the piece, uh, Hanif Qureshi said something really interesting about Dickens and his eminence as a novelist and said Dickens could do the way we can't do now a novel in which the Home Secretary and the prisoner are equally rendered with the same degree of verisimilitude. And I, I probably stuck in my mind that remark of his, but I liked the idea of the canvas and from uh, supposedly high to supposedly low is the dramatic challenge of it. 
I think the danger of it can be that, not in your case, but I think the, an author can kind of decide all the positions ahead of time and just kind of assign. Um, and I think some of the recent Brexit, Trump, well, Trump novels particularly, there have been which have kind of got a family in which you have one brother who's this and one brother who's that. And it can be a bit, it can be schematic. And and then the question is how many how many characters to include to get the state of the nation. And I was quite interested in Dos Passos in, uh, in the 1930s and the idea of the collective novel that also filtered into Britain mm. and which kind of expanded the cast of characters way beyond sort of 12 or something to... 40 you know what happens when you have 40 characters yeah and it's kind of impossible but it's also interesting to think about yeah it makes a different kind of novel a daring novel structurally yeah i don't know if you've read jonathan coe's middle england yes i haven't i think we can still talk (laughs) so what's interesting about it is that um it does do that thing that you say where if families are divided in this fairly predictable generational way and so on and after I, I listened to the audiobook, but as I was listening to it, I also thought, but that's kind of how we are divided now. You know, it's also that thing; it does capture something about yes. this. No, it's not; it's not like entirely it. token. I actually found a lot of it quite compelling because we are in this. And it's more complicated moment. than I yeah. caricatured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah. we are in this yeah. political moment where some of the the political divisions are very, very schematic. You know, like you can guess very easily where someone's going to come down on a political divide. We're not. People's politics tends not to be surprising these days, which is a challenge for a novelist, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's because you've got a surprise. And we all know lots of good stories that are set within families, yeah. the House of Atreus uh, onward. So, I mean, I always tell creative writing students, be careful how many siblings you, you, you give a character because you're going to have to dramatise them all in a three-dimensional way. You're, you're always stuck with that at blueprint stage. But I don't, I don't know how else you go around uh, that issue uh, with a, a novel with that ambition. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So what are your favourite political novels? Actually, before I ask you that, are you you okay being called a quote-unquote political novelist? Or do you think it's too reductive? Depends who's in the room, you know. I mean, I, I, I I'm fine with that. Or, or a novelist on political themes. Uh, that's what they're mostly about. Yes, political novels that I like. I mean, to me, the best one in English, it's a familiar choice, uh, is All the King's Men by Robert nice. Penn Warren. It's based on the life of Huey Long, and it has that much debt to the actuality. But it it's, it just elevates the whole thing to myth. It's that kind of a, a novel. It's so good. The journeys of the characters, the, the human cost of things you believe in and try to enact. So to me, it, it, it's the best. Is that a novel about... So I have to admit, I hadn't read it until recently. It's there on my desk. Is it a novel about politics? So it's a novel about family, basically, that happens to be... I mean, maybe this is true of the great political novels. It happens to have a political setting... Is that the essence of it? Because there's also that question about political novels. Do they have to capture what's unique 
about politics. So I know, like the Huey Long world, this is a world. It has you know, what is politics? It's about power and elections and the, the use of force and so on. But isn't that a f- classic family novel? I mean, what Robert Penn Warren himself said he when he was praised as writing a political novel that he thought politics was just a framework to explore kind of philosophical ideas about time and also fathers and sons and so but I think the first maybe third of the book which is about Willie Stark the Huey Long character getting elected is a fantastic account of local politics and really the the narrator of the book the or the protagonist I can't remember if he's a narrator you know he's his fixer and it's, it's really about the beginnings of spin in the 1930s so it is a political novel in that sense. Is how yeah, how do you get somebody elected? It's post truth, long way before yeah, post truth. Very much. So. <laughs> it's pre truth. I'm, I'm sure Penn Warren didn't want to be uh, stereotyped, but there's a reason why he chose politics as, as the, that field of battle. I mean, the, the epigraph I chose for Crusaders, uh, Tony Blair said that you know the, the archetypal story of politics was was the story of Pontius Pilate, you know, a man who was not a bad man but a, a trying to be a good man and how, and how closely he failed. <laughs> I'm more interested in Pontius Pilate than I am in, in Tony Blair and New Labour, but I'm still quite interested <laughs> in the latter. And I think Penn Warren was the same. Everything that Willie Stark does influences, or you might say contaminates his associates and they make political choices that affect their personal lives. I think that's that's why it's profoundly and, But it's not cynical because in the it, it ends up by politics is carrying on and I think whatever happens to Willie the things he believes in are not presented as being you know he builds all these hospitals in Louisiana he fixes the roads and so these aren't seen as kind of trivial or flawed results even though they come out of ego and so on absolutely and and of course the doctor who becomes his nemesis essentially says to him but you're doing it for the wrong reason (laughs) you won't accept that the outcome matters more than the intention and of course, Stark says to him famously, "You know, I, I know how to do good. Uh, I make the good out of the bad because there's nothing else to make it out of." And that is obviously a, a deeply conservative idea and a deeply political idea. Mm. Now, I was thinking with with the knives that the thing about Home Secretaries is if what makes politics distinct is that it's about the control of violence, of the instruments of violence. Mm-hmm. That is the political office, right? And and the themes that are in that book, which are terrorism and policing. And you know, this is a guy who's come out of the the state's military arm and then into its kind of controlling legitimate violence arm. There is something, what makes a political novel distinctively political, and there's you know, a certain amount of it in All the King's Men too, it's, it, there's violence, right? And it's about legitimate and illegitimate violence. That's part of the story, and it's a big part of the story you tell. Absolutely, yeah. You have to do it. Yeah, you have to do it and you have to live with the consequences. We, we talked about this in a recent podcast to do with Weber's famous lecture about the responsibility of politics with Jonathan Powell, Tony Blair's <laughs> former chief of staff. But it's, you know, it's a really interesting theme, which is that timeless theme of politics, which is you've got to live with the consequences and the knowledge that the means available to you, what makes your job different, is that you run the killing machines. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm a big Weber guy. I don't remember at what point I've uh, decided that my Home Secretary had to be a soldier. That Well, once I began constructing his career, his backstory, I knew he had to be in Bosnia. And something about that conflict, and that's why the novel begins with him in that uh, theatre, I had to try and make the, the, the soldier's decision and predicament there ideally explicable. It, it becomes a kind of metaphor for what side you choose, what, 
how and, and where and why do you exercise force since you must because Bosnia was obviously a, a moral thicket but an area where eventually Blair offered a particular leadership I think which nobody else was willing to True. One of my favourite political novels is E.L. Doctorow's The Book of Daniel which is about what happens when the state uses violence against its own to protect itself so it's about the execution of the Rosenbergs in 1953 and it was written in 1971 at a time when I think now there is evidence that they were spies, but at that time it was ambiguous. And Doctorow's novel has a, imagines the son of the, the Rosenbergs kind of trying to piece together their, their story. And he changes the name to Isaacson and thinking about the idea of Isaac who's sacrificed. And again, it's, you know, how does a country sacrifice its own for the so-called national good? And I think one of the things that makes the book so good, it, it's certainly a book that comes out of um, All the King's Men about a historian, somebody trying to understand his kind of politics. It's about the new left and the old left, but it's much wider than that about complicity, conspiracy. Again, the, what's the public good and the individual cost of that? So that's one I'd recommend. Mm-hmm. It's a great choice. I mean, do you think that that and All the King's Men, so there's that feeling that the sort of Trump world is... You know, we've never been here before. This is like this. This craziness is something completely unprecedented, and and no doubt bits of it are completely unprecedented. And Trump himself is not a figure that it's easy to find comparable examples in the past or even in fiction. But a lot of what surrounds it is not new at all. I mean, it's not just in history, but in fiction that the construction of political identities around all of these conspiracies and. Fakery of various kinds. I mean, fiction brings that out. Fiction loves conspiracy, but what's well, plot? You know, yeah, it's not a conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah. In, in ancient Rome and ancient Greece are great places to go if you want to do Trump. I'm amazed we've not. I'm sure there have been. I'm sure we'll see some more attempts to dra- to dramatise those comparisons. Theresa May is not probably going to be the star of any great novel anytime soon. Do you think Trump will be? Well, again, I think he's kind of a blank, uninteresting person in himself. You know, he doesn't speak in sentences. I mean, the the backstory of his family is is interesting, but the people around him are more interesting than yeah, the father son thing. Though, father son is, is could be another, a, and the brother as well. The, yes. the brother who died, the yes. alcoholic brother. Yes. But again, I can't see he would become a tragic character. I think Muller is going to be the great hero of novels to come. Hopefully, <laughs> maybe. I mean, Trump, didn't, didn't Tom Wolfe do him already? Didn't uh, Brett Easton Ellis? Yeah, I mean, American Psycho. Uh, yeah, yeah. Trump, Trump is the great hero of the, the, the murderous yeah. protagonist in American Psycho. There's nothing there. You know, I mean, Mailer once said of, of George W. Bush that, that he didn't have a, any sense of his own ridiculousness. And, I mean, that's a little harsh on W. But it's, it's absolutely true of, of Trump. How, how can you deal with somebody? Because Nixon, you know is actually a character that there have been many, many novels about. And Nixon is a very interesting figure. Yes, interesting. Still Conflicted a, and all sorts of things. Had a curious go to try and elevate him up to the, the tragic level, which, which doesn't work. But there's plenty there to, to bite on pathetic things he did. Seems to be more there than in Trump. Oh, God, no. No question about it. Yeah. I, it's hard to think of anything, anyone in whom there's less to bite on. I mentioned in an earlier podcast one of my favourite recent novels is American Wife by yes. Curtis Sittenfeld, which yes. is the story of Laura Bush, mm. in which it's George book, yeah. it's a great book, and George W. Bush, you know, he's an absolutely central character in it, but he's also he's the sideshow, and there is a way of telling you know the story of a president 
through the family. And Laura Bush's life has a central fact in it, the car accident in which, age 17, she killed her boyfriend or would-be boyfriend. And nothing else matters after that. It doesn't matter that your husband becomes president of the United States. And it's just a great book for giving you different perspectives on... Being great, the most powerful... It's a great book about yeah. class and kind of class divides and yeah. kind of how... Yeah, the Bush family. The Bush or family are kind yeah, of... Their holidays are yeah. <laughs> chilling in their yes. bonhomie. Yes. Yeah, there you have it. That's the way to do it. I mean, like, like Emily Dickinson said, you, you've got to tell it slant. You've, you've got to go at it by the, the oblique angle and, and not do the figurehead character where you exhaust the possibilities immediately. I think the... Conrad's The Secret Agent would be a good model for a Brexit novel. Uh, you know, if you imagine the House of Commons there is seen, or Parliament is seen as the centre of the empire, there's a kind of moment where, and full of kind of functionaries, Toodles, I think his name is, and then the Home Secretary, it's another Home Secretary book, who's Alfred. So it's, again, um, so the fantasies of kind of the Brexiters are sort of in Parliament as if where it's this kind of empty place and then all around are guys walking around with bombs under their coats. Absolutely, like yeah. Tommy Robinson. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah. Conrad and, and Dostoevsky, both brilliant on terror. Uh, the, the Devils, I think, belongs uh, alongside Secret Agent. Dominic Cummings, big fan of Dostoevsky. No surprise that, yeah. that James Graham, when he tried to do Brexit, went went through Cummings and, and that strange, violent, let's smash this thing up impetus that drove him rather than being overwhelmed by trying to do a larger canvas. In many ways, the classic mid-late 19th century political novels are the Palliser novels, the Trollope novels, the great novels of Parliament, which I don't know to what extent, because there are Trollopean references in your work and Martin Pallister, Palliser and so on. Um, I love those books, I don't know if you do, but part of what I love about them is they have that state of the nation thing going on but they they really take kind of parliament seriously and then they they have these slightly oblique portrayals of Gladstone and Disraeli yes. and there's nothing like them particularly the portrayal of Disraeli as this kind of magician completely unscrupulous magician but you're a couple of removes he doesn't try and tell their story in any sense from the inside they're these showmen of different kinds yeah. and it's the middle ranking Phineas Finns who are seeing it but I love those books yeah they're brilliant. He's a fantastic chronicler. You, you can't go past him. You have to go through him if you're writing about politics, certainly British politics. So I tip the hat to him out, out of affection. The Prime Minister is my favourite of them because I think the higher you know, uh, Plantagenet passer gets up the chain, the more interested I uh, become in the dramas of it. And that one is where he falls for the con man, right? If I recall right. Isn't, yeah. yeah, so which also... So there was a moment around when Cherie Blair got mixed up with. I can't remember yes, yes. who the guy was and then... That there, you know, and there is that when you read that book there's that story how can you simultaneously be Prime Minister and such a gullible fool and yet it was happening I mean it happens a lot I mean I think all all political leaders are vulnerable to the charlatan who um, but is that perhaps because why those books are so good is because Trollope was more interested in those human questions and also the kind of procedural milieu of Parliament rather than you know, Disraeli was also writing novels which haven't really lasted because he was more interested in the ideas and that the novels were, were this... I mean, Trollope said that his novels were vehicles to express ideas because he wasn't elected. But I don't know if you come out of those books feeling 
that what you're learning about is the main ideas that are driving politics in the 19th century, so much as what it was like to be there. Yeah, and it's almost as though, I mean, part of the appeal of the portrayal of Disraeli is it's saying it frankly doesn't matter what the ideas yes, are yeah, this man yeah. is a magician right you I mean it's all because yeah. it's about the second reform act like yeah. how does the conservative yeah. politician manage to turn this liberal issue into his own yeah. and it's magic yeah. and it's completely unscrupulous and also kind of shocking and disgusting <laughs> and mesmerizing yeah. uh, I mean Disraeli I agree it's interesting because there are I don't think maybe there are there are any great politician novelists are there there are great politician historians. There are great politician writers, but novelists. I know a lot of them try and write thrillers. Sadly, yeah. there is that former <laughs> Home Secretaries. I think isn't there that, that Douglas Hurd genre of yeah. political fiction? I wouldn't be surprised if Obama comes out with a novel at some point. You know, he's obviously interested in fiction. And yeah, you have to bet it wouldn't be about politics or Washington. I know. And do you think so? The ones that we've talked about. Richard, yours are, I think it's fair to say, quintessentially British novels. You, you are trying to understand this country. The, one, the novels I write. Yeah, the novels you write. Yeah. Sorry, the novels you write. Yeah. Um, All the King's Men is a quintessentially American novel, I think. Politics is politics. But do you think, is there a big transatlantic divide in the in the fiction as well? Norman Mailer, he's such an American writer. I think there's a breadth of imagination in American writing about politics that feels a, a, a bit less trapped by tribal and regional loyalties than the, the British novel about politics. Mail is an extreme example, but only Mailer could have written a novel about the, the CIA at great length. And, and when asked about it, you know, how could you write about these awful people? He said, well, we're all a bit awful, aren't we? I mean, he had that confidence, in other words, that said, let's see how this pans out. It's interesting, isn't it? I don't know if it's anything to do with the size of America and the fact that they get more accustomed to encountering a difference. It's often said the, the American literary world was, was very shaped by all, all these people coming to New York City, as, as they had to, to be writers, and, but they'd come from very different places. But yeah, I, I do feel that they're more at ease with the bigger canvas. I think there's also, for a certain kind of American political novel, that they have something that the British writers don't have, which is the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence... They have all these texts by which they measure a current political moment. And I think it's particularly true of a generation of writers born in the 30s, kind of Roosevelt Democrats or 40s even. Marilyn Robinson would be a kind of later one. But Roth, Updike, Richard Ford, who are always evoking those texts as a kind of doctorate as well in the, in the Book of Daniel. It's about measuring what the country falls short of. And so there are always these kind of scenes. The plot against America has a scene where, you know, it's sort of imagining an alternative future where America in the 40s, Lindbergh is elected and there's a kind of fascist state for a few years. But there's a scene where the, the Roth family goes to the Lincoln Memorial and kind of try and read the, the Gettysburg Address, read the second inauguration rather. And that's what we're kind of measuring the, the current State. So there's always a sense of country not living up to those texts, which Britain just doesn't have. Yeah, there's something about the unwritten constitution. Uh, you think of what, why did C.P. Snow call it the corridors of power? There's the idea of something hidden, inaccessible, not of the people. It's, it's slightly arcane and has to be accessed by patronage. You know, I think that might characterise 
something about the, the British political. Novel. Yeah, weird corridors of power and their Independence Day. That's the kind <laughs> of I mean, independence is a, is a deep theme, right? In yes. in American fiction, yeah. it's it's and runs law, right the way I mean, through. I think law is the the kind of the rule of law, and I think that's why the kind of fascination now with with Mueller and and with the whole the, the law will sort out Trump. You know, if we kind of follow the rules, eventually the law law will prevail or the system will prevail. But, I mean, American, I mean, uh, All the King's Men is a kind of cynical novel as well. So there is a kind of cynicism that comes in, you know, how House of Cards translated from Britain to America shows that, you know, although it became kind of very preposterous, but, you know, there is a way in which it's not all idealism there versus kind of dirty hands here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the paranoid style in American politics has always sold tickets. Um, uh, the idea that, yes, there, you know, power corrupts absolutely and, and watch, it, isn't it fun, uh, is uh, you, you don't lose money uh, going down that route. And do you have any sense of why some political novels don't last? Because Corridors of Power is a really interesting example of one that at the time it was thought to be the great laying bare of how this thing works and it was a celebrated novel and I don't know if anyone reads it now but it's um it's really really stilted and it's kind of dead in a way and yet the themes are timeless it's about nuclear power and and big moral choices and it's it's the classic thing of this is a job where you make these decisions that have consequences that go beyond the consequences of a regular job and yet that novel is dead right unless I'm I haven't read it for a while, but it's, it's also fun to read. I mean, there's also a novel called The Masters about the election to a Cambridge college. Now, again, people used to think the way to write about politics was to write about the internal politics of a Cambridge college. It's really not the way to write about politics. Yeah, I mean, you sort of summed it up. It's not about the themes. It's about how it's executed. I mean, F.R. Levis had some sharp words to say at great length about it with, with relish, excluding him from the club of, of good writing and... and not entirely unfairly, probably. It's, it's the, the writing is inert. It's mechanical, isn't it? It is that thing that, Kashi, you were saying about the, the people are in their slots yes. and they're not really doing anything except filling those slots. It's also, I think, you know, books come and go because of what's happening in the world. You know, now everybody's reprinting Sinclair Lewis. It can't happen here. It was a book no one read for years and years and suddenly it was became the key to, to thinking about Trump. And American publishers, I think, are reprinting a lot of The Man in the High Castle, all, the, all those kind of dystopian versions, whereas they, they're not printing new novels because actually fiction sales, and this is the other thing, fiction sales are down, I think, in Britain and the States because people want to read the political exposés. They, they want to grasp the facts when the facts seem so kind of nebulous. Richard, am I allowed to ask you, are you do you have a, another political novel... You Coming, you certainly may, and I do. Yeah, it's in, it's in the works. Can you tell us anything about it, um, or is that jinxing it? I don't know how this works. Never having been a Home Secretary or a novelist, <laughs> I have no idea how these things work. Yeah, I don't want to say too much, just because it, uh, it's not so much jinxing as uh, uh, you know, casting judgment on things that have yet to exist. But it, 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 it is set in, in a little bit in the past, and it's called the Black Eden. More than that. It ends in, in 1975, just after the, the referendum uh, in which we joined the, uh, the, the EC. So the 40-year-ish rule? I see the, 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 the perspicacity of that idea. <laughs> I, I thoroughly endorse it. <laughs> we look forward to it. Yeah. Thank you very much. We'll tweet 
a link to Richard's books and also to some of the work that Kasia has done on recent fiction, particularly American fiction. We are recording another episode very soon about Brexit and everything that's happening this week, and we will publish it as soon as we can. Do join us for that and join us again next week. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. And it'd be good to do a bit of Theresa May. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. And we won't talk about bodyguard. <laughs> I saw, didn't you get asked a lot? Right. Seemed a very different thing from your thing to me. Yes, that's true. I mean, when my agent was putting it out for telly, as, as he usually does, you know, she, I remember the day she called me up and said, listen, uh, bad news, Jed Mercurio is writing something for the BBC. And they're like, okay, that, that's the end of that. But, you know, I mean, never in a million years could I have written that. It would never have occurred to me. But it doesn't have to be either or. Well, weirdly enough, you can only write one. We're going to have to save it for the podcast. <laughs>